we are continuing our uh, series on the life of David, a summer series, and we have a lot of work to do this morning. When Pastor Steve, uh, before I even joined the staff, he said, hey, I want you to preach in June. I was all excited to preach. Then my first day here, he takes me to Panera Bread, and he goes, hey, I have your passage. And I said, what's that? He says, uh, 1 Samuel 18 through 29. And so I was like, like, chapter 15, 18 through 29? He's like, no, like 1 Samuel 18 through 29. So he stood up here last week with the story of Goliath. He's like, I have 53 verses to talk about. He gives me literally 11 chapters. Um, So the staff was like, well, how are you going to handle this? I was like, I'm just going to have everybody stand. We're going to read all 11 chapters. Their feet will get tired. We'll leave. But then I'll get fired from my job. Um... We're going to cover a lot of text this morning. I had a guy after the 8 o'clock service. He's like, we were waiting for you to take a breath. I'm like, I don't have time. Uh, So we're going to get through this text a lot, how I got through college and seminary. We're going to skim read, okay? Uh, But first, we need to set a little context to what's going on. So chapter 17, if you've been living in a hole uh, or you weren't here last week, David, uh, superhero of the Bible, he kills Goliath, nine foot six, like a taller DeAndre Ayton, that's a little more aggressive. Uh, He kills Goliath, uh, and and Saul, the king, has absolutely no idea uh, who killed Goliath. So he talks to Abner, who's the commander of his army, and he said, Abner, who killed Goliath? Go find him for me. So what happens is Abner goes and finds David. He brings David before King Saul, says, Saul, this is David. He killed Goliath. And as proof, David had Saul's massive, or it's not Saul's head, Goliath's head in his hand. So he said, boom, killed this guy. Here's his head to prove it. So that brings us to chapter 18. Right at the beginning of chapter 18, and if you're thumbing through your Bible, you're going to get a paper cut, so just a heads up. Uh, So right at the beginning of chapter 18, Scripture tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So who's Jonathan? Jonathan is Saul's son. He's the king's son, and he's best friends with David. They would have been like the same age. They would have fought in battles together. They were best buds, right? And when his soul is knit to David's, that's significant. Because in that moment, Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, his sword, and his bow. And that's significant because that stuff that Jonathan gave David was Jonathan's because he's the rightful heir to the throne. But when he gives it to David, that shifts the power, and all of a sudden now David becomes a member of the royal household. And that is significant. So notice chapter 18, verse 5. If I can get my clicker to work. I feel like Corey McCloskey from Fox 10. Um, 18.5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. So David's prospering, he's doing great, but things start to turn relatively quickly, right? After their battle with the Philistines, David and the army comes back to the streets of Israel to a huge celebration. And scripture says that there's women in the streets, they're dancing, they're singing, they're playing instruments. It does not look at all like a Baptist church service, okay? It's wild. And in verse 7, there's the lyrics that they're singing. And it says, the women sang as they played, and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So this is the first sign of a threat with Saul. He sees what the people think of him, right? The people are saying, they've attributed a thousand kills to me, but to this guy David, 10,000 kills. And at this point, Saul's probably thinking, this guy's just on track. He's got the popularity of the people. He's going to take over my kingdom. And what's interesting is three chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 15, 
the King Saul, he's having a conversation with Samuel. Samuel wrote the book. He's a prophet. And Samuel prophesies to Saul in that moment. In verse 28, he says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So first you have this prophecy in chapter 15, right? Then you have all the chants and the singing in the streets. And Saul now knows that both God and the people are pretty much for David. So what does that make David? Public enemy number one in the eyes of the king. And in chapter 18, we're going to see Saul try multiple ways to murder David. So change scenes quickly. They're all hanging out in the kingdom. I like to imagine Saul like on this big comfy couch, right? And Saul's sitting there, and David's playing the harp. So David is known as a harp player in the Bible. And what he did was like, Saul, you'll read this passage, and Saul's always on edge. And David would play the harp in order to kind of calm Saul down. So David's playing the harp, and Scripture tells us that an evil spirit from God comes upon Saul mightily. Saul grabs the spear right next to him, throws it at David, tries to pin him to the wall. He doesn't succeed. He goes and gets the the spear again, throws it at him for a second time. Didn't succeed that time either, or else the sermon would be over. So considering Saul couldn't nail him to the wall with his spear, he's like, hey, I'll just try another tactic. He puts David in charge of some of the troops. And his thought there is, hey, I'll have David go out and lead the army. And if he makes a misstep, the people will hate him because he'll lose the battle. Or maybe he'll make a big enough misstep that he'll just get killed and then my problem is eliminated altogether. But none of that happens. David flourishes and the people now love him more than ever. So then Saul tries a third thing. He tries to marry marry off David with his oldest daughter, Merib. The problem is David does not find Merib attractive. So Saul knew David's from a poor family. If I can get David to marry one of my daughters, he can't pay to get to marry her. He'll have to pay through military service. Maybe he'll die that way. But David didn't want to marry Merib. He wanted to marry Saul's other daughter, Michael. So Saul picks up on that. He sees Michael and David flirting together. He sets them up. And so David actually wants to marry this girl. So he goes up to Saul, knowing like, hey, I'm from a poor family. And he says, hey, Saul, I don't have the money to pay you. How do you want me to pay you to marry your daughter? So Saul tells him that instead of paying him anything of monetary value, he can just go kill the Philistines and bring him back a hundred foreskins. Okay, that is weird, right? So what does David do? He goes and kills the Philistines and brings Saul back 200 foreskins, which is even more weird. So think about this. You have David. He's best friends with Jonathan, who's Saul's son. And then he's married to one of Saul's daughters, Michael. So two of the king's own kids are deeply connected with David. So you have this guy, David, who's killing giants with a couple stones and a slingshot, He's bringing foreskins back to Saul. He's marrying the king's daughter. He's gaining quick popularity with the people. David now has probably the quickest path to the throne in Israel. And to think that a lot of you, you sit and pay to watch eight seasons of some show on HBO with dragons that are like all revolving around who's going to sit on the iron throne in a world that absolutely doesn't exist blows me away. You can get all the same drama without all the debauchery if you just dig into a little 1 Samuel, right? Don't act like you guys don't watch Game of Thrones. 
But seriously, go home and read these 11 chapters. It'll absolutely blow your mind on what's going on. So the story continues. David is now continually going into battle with the Philistines. He's winning literally every battle he enters, and this makes David more and more popular with the people. Now Saul's running out of options, right? He can't keep just throwing David into military service. David just keeps winning. Now in chapter 19, Saul uses his son Jonathan, who's David's best friend, to go kill David. Gets his son to the side, hey, you should go kill David. Jonathan takes everything Saul told him, and he goes and relays it to David. That's his best friend. I blame Saul. It's Father's Day. He didn't teach his son that snitches get stitches, right? But that's what happens. He says, go kill David. Jonathan runs to David, tells Saul, or tells David, hey, my dad wants me to kill you. And I know it's easy to joke, but like, look how Saul doesn't use much discernment at all with the moves he's making. He doesn't even try to set David up with the right daughter. Now he's telling Jonathan all his plans, like he doesn't even know that they're best friends. Then comes the crowning blow that pretty much set David on the run. Chapter 19 is much like chapter 18. David beats the Philistines in battle. David comes back to the palace. David sits down to play the harp in front of Saul. Saul again takes his spear, tries to pin David to the wall with it the third time. Now think about this, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, Saul is clearly not dealing with a full deck, right? I mean, Scripture is very clear that an evil spirit, like the Lord made an evil spirit come upon him, but the behavior's still a little weird. Like he's just sitting in the palace, he's dressed to go to war, he's got all his armor on and he's got his spear right next to him. Like when I go home today, I'm not going to sit on my couch in my jeans and a button down getting ready to watch the Diamondbacks because I'm ready to preach. I'm going to relax. But Saul's in the palace and he's just ready for war, right? So when Saul again throws the spear at David, David doesn't wait for him to throw it twice. He up and leaves town. And the first place David goes is to see Samuel, the guy who wrote the book, in a town called Ramah. But the problem is, wherever David goes, Saul quickly finds out. And sure enough, it's not long before Saul finds out exactly where David is. And he sends three groups of men to get him, and they're all literally stopped by the Spirit of God. Like literally, these men are sent to go kill David. They show up at this town, Ramah, and they see Samuel and some other men prophesying. Well, what does that mean in like 2019, right? So Samuel's a prophet. He had all these little prophets that would follow him. I'll compare it to Desert Springs. Pastor Robbie is the pastor of apologetics, okay? He has all these little apologetics fans that follow him everywhere. Samuel, same exact thing. He's a prophet. All these little people prophesying. Not, they weren't like little people, but they were prophesying, and they're next to him. But here's what happens. David sends the first group of men out, or Saul sends the first group of men out to kill David. They see these men prophesying, and Scripture says that they're in the presence of God immediately when they see these men prophesying, and they're stopped in their tracks. Because the presence of God is ultimately stronger than anything that Saul can throw at at David, right? The second group comes. Same exact thing happens to them. They're They're stopped in their tracks by the Spirit of God. They turn into prophets. Then a third group of men comes. They're sent out. The Spirit of God comes upon them. And finally, Saul's like, I've sent three groups of men. They've all been stopped. I'm just going to get up off the couch and do this myself. He heads to Ramah. He asks around, hey, where's David? He's told, go to, go to Ramah. And the Spirit of God, Scripture says, comes on him literally before he even gets there. See, in 1923, Scripture says, And the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. 
Now this is where it gets weird. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Okay, so Saul, he's the king, right? Scripture says he's the tallest, he's the best-looking man in the world. He's so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God that he stripped himself naked all day and all night. And there's some spiritual significance there. We don't really have time to get into it. So two chapters in, I hope we start to see there's some distinctives here. That David's behavior is one thing and Saul's behavior is a totally different thing. And after all, if you remember, Saul was the king that the people wanted. David was the king that the Lord ordained, right? Because David was chosen. Look at the text and all the signs that are pointing in that direction. You have Jonathan, who's the rightful heir to the throne, yet he sacrificially gives to David. You have David gaining the support of the people by continually going into battle and winning. Some of the verses just flat out say how David was chosen in chapter 18. 18, 18.5, it says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. 18.12, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. 18.14, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And we see this throughout Scripture. So sure, David is a Bible hero to us now. He's like, growing up, did you guys have like the flannel graphs? So like David was always like first guy you'd stick on the flannel graph. He's like a superhero of the Bible. But in all reality, like in this situation, he's just a shepherd boy, right? He's hanging out in the fields by himself. He's taking that time in solitude. He's probably from a poor family. I think last week, Pastor Steve described him as Opie Taylor, right? David was just a regular dude. But this is just one of many examples where God pulled just a regular person and weaved that person into the narrative of his story, right? The unexpected shepherd boy who God took out of the field, whose family line would one day include Jesus Christ. But I think a lot of us as Christians, we walk through life not really believing like God can work in and through us, right? I mean, if the Spirit of God is truly in you, why can't it? This morning, we're looking at the beginning of David's story. Like, David goes on to become the king later. This is like David's humble beginnings, and the Lord is working through him. And this chunk of scripture, it should just strengthen the point, drive home the point for us that God works through ordinary. Whether it's the Old Testament, the New Testament, literally anywhere you look in scripture, from Genesis to the maps in the back, even today, God works through ordinary people in order to accomplish his purposes. So as a Christian, your education, your annual income, your relationship status, what you look like, none of that matters to God. He simply works through those whom he's chosen to work with. So picking up on this story, things get even more interesting. And from chapters 21 to 29, we get a really good snapshot of what David looks like as a fugitive. So David travels a couple miles south where he was at Naoth and Ramah, and he goes to a place called Nob. Saul's hot on his track, so then he heads about 23 miles southwest of Nob to a place called Gath. Remember, he's on foot, so he figures if he goes 23 miles away, he's safe. He thought he was out of danger, but the problem is the servants of the king at Gath, they recognize him as the man who's killed tens of thousands of people. The problem is the people who recognized him, the servants of the king, would have been in support of Saul, not David. So David right away knows, I'm in danger, I've been outed. Then David does some weird stuff. He acts completely insane. 
He damages public property. Literally, he like wrote on the city gates and graffitied the walls. There's also like a little excerpt that David started like crawling and drooling all over his beard. So some weird stuff was going on, but David accomplished his purposes that the king, he'd be brought before the king doing all this crazy stuff, and the king would know right away, like, this guy's insane, get him out of my presence. And that's exactly what the king did. So David escapes. He goes 10 miles east, and he goes to a cave. And there in the middle of the cave, he's brought next to his family. He reconvenes with his family, his parents, maybe his siblings. He's off in some cave, and Scripture says that he's also in a cave with 400 other people who join him, who Scripture describes them as people living on the outskirts of town that had failed to properly integrate into the fabric of society. Do any of you watch Live PD by any chance? great. I'm the only guy. Uh, Thank you. Um, So there's a county that they always go to in Nevada. If you're from there, I'm totally sorry. Don't send me an email. It's always like the most random people. That's who I imagine uh, David to be rolling with in this moment. But at this point, he's in this cave, and you have Saul, who hopefully put his clothes back on. He's in hot pursuit of David. And Saul's actions here show that he was just completely out of his mind. In one chapter, he orders the mass execution of an entire town, not just men. It was the men, women, children, infants, livestock, wipes out the whole entire town. That would have been an unspeakable crime that completely violated not only human law, but the Jewish law that Saul was supposedly in charge of. And in the meantime, David's traveling from town to town, desert to desert, continuing to kill the Philistine army. After a while, David's army grows to about 600. And you have David's camp giving him intelligence on where Saul is, and Saul's camp giving, David inte- giving him intelligence on where David is. It's like a super intense game of hide and seek, right? Yet we already talked about it. God protected David. Look at chapter 23, verse 14. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Saul had a lot more manpower and was after David every day. Yet God never delivered him into his hand because David was chosen. Now the real climax of this story comes in chapter 24, and we're just going to read it. Verse 1, it says, Now when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of the Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel, so remember David has 600, Saul has 3,000, and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. Awesome location name. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. I'm not making this up. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So literally Saul, in the middle of chasing David, randomly has to relieve himself, and he decides to pick the one cave that not only David's sitting in, But David's 600 merry men are all camping in too. Verse 4, the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. David's men are just sitting in the cave looking at David like, Bro, go kill the guy. He's right in front of you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. He cuts off the edge of his robe secretly. Saul couldn't even feel the edge of his robe cut off. 
Verse 5, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So finally you have David, this mighty warrior, right? He killed a nine foot six guy. He kills tens of thousands of Philistines, even while he's a fugitive being chased by Saul. He comes feet from the guy who's trying to kill him, and he takes out his sword, and he cuts off the edge of his robe, and then he feels bad about it. Like, I like to think I'd be all tough, and I would have killed Saul, but like, I don't even own a gun, so I probably would have been all soft. But think about that, like, Saul doesn't even notice David did that. And Saul just gets up and leaves the cave. Verse 8, Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. Now my father see, and notice how David's talking to Saul. He's calling him the king, my Lord, the king, my father. He says, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. And just imagine David just holding that robe up, right? He says, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and I did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? It's like my favorite line. It says, whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And after David says that, scripture says, then Saul, he notices the voice of David, because he probably couldn't see David, right? But he notices it's David's voice. He turns to David, he falls, and he just starts weeping. And he just starts admitting his wrongdoing. In verse 18, he says to David, You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. Verse 20 says, Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So as you look at David's actions through all of this, you quickly see that David understood his position, right? So first, he understood his position before the chase. Think back to chapter 18. Saul's sitting there. He throws the spear at David twice. David's willingness to remain in that room long enough for Saul to not only throw the spear at him, but go retrieve the spear after his first failed attempt and then take a second shot at him, what that does is portrays the depths of David's loyalty to the king. And it portrayed the depths of his commitment to helping Saul overcome these torments. So before the chase, David understood his position. He understood his role before his king. Then in the climax of 24, he understands his position when the chase was over. 
So honestly speaking, if this is a movie script, David would have not thought twice about killing Saul in that cave, right? He would have just gotten rid of him. But it's interesting that David has the wisdom and David has the humility to say he's not even going to lift his finger against the Lord's anointed. Because David understood his position. He understood how to properly look at people. He understood how to move forth in humility. He understood how to advise his men to move in wisdom. And here's David in a difficult situation where thousands of Saul's men are after him to kill him, yet he's slow to act on his enemy because he understands God's purpose is higher and more important than his own. So after this scene in chapter 24, there's not a ton of action that goes on. Like I said, David eventually becomes the king in like 2 Samuel 5. But it's my hope this morning that I've like clearly communicated the fact that David was in a difficult situation. At one point in the text, Saul tries to kill David four times in just one day. David's going from town to town, traveling dozens of miles on foot, going through the wilderness, staying in deserts, caves, he's camping outside, he's hanging out with weirdos, yet he clings to and fully trusts God because David clung to the Lord. In chapter 19, it's interesting, when David initially flees from Saul, he does so at the help of his wife, Michael, who's also Saul's daughter. You see, Michael found out that her dad, Saul, was trying to kill her husband, and she helped him flee by opening a window in their bedroom. And when she let that window out, she's like, well, I have to make it look like David's here. So scripture tells us that Michael took a household idol, which in that time would have been like a life-size human idol, uh, dedicated to ancestor worship, she took that idol, put goat's hair on its head, and laid it in David's spot in bed. So when Saul's men came to get him, they just saw the idol and figured it was David. It threw, it threw them off his scent. So it tricked the servants of Saul, but it's interesting to note her behavior when it's contrast to David's. In this moment where David escapes, he also writes Psalm 59. And here we get a good grasp of what David is thinking. Psalm 59, verses 9 and 10, David says, Because of his strength I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Verses 16 and 17, he says, But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. You see, I read this psalm where David's crying out to God in a time of trouble, and then I read these 11 chapters, I've read them like a million times over the past couple weeks, just trying to get a grasp of what's going on, and I see how David continuously acts in the face of difficulty, and I can't help but wonder like how differently we should navigate moments of difficulty if we would look on the Lord dependent on his loving kindness, right? If we viewed God how he should be viewed, as a refuge in a day of distress. And I know for a lot of us, in times of trouble, in times of darkness, difficulty is navigated a little more like Michael than it is David. We run to those easy things, right? We run to the things that bring quick satisfaction. We run to the idols in our lives, the things that bring nothing but temporary comfort. In moments of difficulty, it's a lot easier to point the finger at God rather than run to him. So just a quick about me and my family. I got married to my wife in October of 2014. We had our first son in July of 2015. If you do the math, he was born nine months and one day after our wedding. 
So we got started immediately. <laughs> She's just looking at me weird. Um, Two or three months, I don't know, after my son was born, uh, she tells me she's pregnant again. I'm like, I didn't know it could happen that fast. Um, we go to the doctor and the ultrasound tech, she's like eight weeks. The ultrasound tech's like, oh, I got a surprise for you. And we're like, what? And uh, she's like, there's two babies in there. And we're like, oh, no. Um, she's like, you're having identical twins. And so we're like, we're going to have like three kids within a year. Um, fast forward to 24 weeks. Uh, we take my wife, uh, I took my wife into the doctor for her 24-week ultrasound. Uh, they noticed at 24 weeks that baby A was like 15 ounces and baby B was 2 pounds. Uh, doctor said, you need to go to a specialist. So Friday morning, we were at a specialist out in Glendale. He tells us, your, your twins have what's called twin-to-twin -twin transfusion syndrome. Since they share the same placenta, I'll turn into like a doctor, their, their nutrients would go back and forth through the placenta, but the way back from baby B was blocked to baby A. That's why he was so small. So he said to us, you know, this whole twin, it's called TTTS. That can escalate from stage one to stage five. Stage five, they'd both be dead in the womb. That could happen within hours. So we were like, well, what do we do here? It wasn't like a laugh. It was scary. Um, he said, you need to get on a plane to go to Colorado. Uh, have a surgery. So Sunday, we got on a plane. We went to Colorado. Monday, my wife had every ultrasound scan shot you could think of. They wanted to know where the babies were positioned in her stomach. Because Tuesday morning, she was going to have laser surgery, where they shot lasers through the placenta to sever the problematic arteries. And I'll never forget that Tuesday morning, they have my wife prep for surgery, and the surgeon comes in, and he looks at my wife and I, and he said, so what did you guys decide to do if the babies go into distress? And we looked at him and we were like, what do you mean? He goes, oh, nobody talked to you about that. We said, no. He said, well, baby A is stuck to the wall of the placenta. We're most likely when we shoot the lasers, we'll probably have to shoot them through him. He has like an 8 to 10% chance to make it out of the surgery. So if he goes into distress, do you want to deliver both babies at 24 weeks? Or would you rather just let baby A pass away in the womb and let baby B just grow? Then when you give birth, one will be stillborn, one will be like a full-grown baby, hopefully. And in that moment, like, there's so much that runs through your head as like a dad, right? Like, what decision do you make in that situation? Like, I know I'm going home to Phoenix and I built two cribs in their room. And what happens? There's nothing that can prepare you for a moment like that. So my wife goes back to this surgery. She's in there for like two and a half hours. I'm just pacing the floor of the hospital. It felt like an eternity. She comes out, the surgeon comes back, and he's like, everything went perfect. It was a miracle. It, but in that moment, we went home, and my wife had to be on bed rest in the hospital for four weeks. So I have a one-year-old son. I'm a dad. I have no idea what I'm doing. But I'm, like, caring for him, going to visit my wife every day in the hospital. She's in there for a month. A day before my twins are born, I get a call from my dad that he's been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. The next day, my dad's 58, by the way. The next day, the twins are born. One's two pounds, one's three pounds. They spend the first eight weeks of their life in the NICU. They're healthy now. It was a miracle, but like I'll tell you this much. Those three months in, in my life was a month, months of just darkness and brokenness. And I'm not naive enough to the fact that some of you walked in here this morning and you're going through the same thing. 
Because as a staff, we get together every morning and we pray for the prayer requests. There's cancer, there's diseases in kids, in adults. There's people missing. There's people passing away. There's brokenness. There's darkness. And I know that a lot of you might have walked in here with a little bit of a limp. But practically speaking, a lot of you are in a season of difficulty right now and you feel like David, like you're in the middle of nowhere. How do you fight for joy in God in the middle of difficulty? I'm going to give you a couple scriptures that are encouraging as we close. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34.18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Hebrews 12 points us to Jesus. It describes Jesus as the one who sits down at the right hand of God because he suffered. He endured hostility. Because of this, we are not to grow weary or lose heart. So don't grow weary. If you're in darkness, run to Jesus and believe that Jesus is good. We mix up progress in the Christian life. Progress is made in the Christian life not by needing Christ less, but by needing Christ more. And some of you are just fighting on this all on your own. You're in the midst of darkness and don't know where to run, but you have to believe that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and run to him.